Good morning. Katie, choir. Craig and the band, thank you so much. You've no idea. You know, I. God is everywhere. The psalm that Craig chose to sing this morning, Danny and Peter read that yesterday at my father-in-law's memorial service. Craig had no idea. God is indeed faithful and true. Amen? Please turn in your Bibles to Acts 23. Acts chapter 23. First thing this morning, I do want to thank you. Um, Jill's dad, our dad, Don Anderson, passed away 10 days ago, and we had his memorial service here yesterday. And our family just wants to thank you. All the love you have lavished on us this past week, flowers, cards, words, you're just being there for us. Thanks to my friend Dan Syrian, who gladly filled in for me last week on less than two days' notice. Thanks, Dan. And thanks for more food than any army could possibly eat. Thanks for all the love. You know, we knew we, knew we had family here at West Bowles, and, and now we truly know that you are family. So all our love right back at you. But we're keeping the food. Your Bibles are open to Acts 23. If you are visiting today, you should know, or I should tell you, we've been spending the last two years almost working our way through Acts. My, how time flies when we're having fun. Amen? We've been spending time with the likes of Peter and James and most recently the Apostle Paul, joining them on their journeys through the first 32 years of the early church. We're on about year 28 right now. And we've all been touched, deeply impacted with how the Holy Spirit, through the faith and sacrificial service of the early believers, took the ends of the earth by storm with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we've been especially challenged and encouraged in our task of doing the same. For God gives us that same task, the task of taking the good news of Jesus Christ to the ends of our earth too. You may recall that the Apostle Paul has just been arrested by the Roman commander Claudius Lysias. Great name, isn't it? Claudius Lysias. The Romans came to Paul's rescue, really. An angry mob of Paul's fellow Jews were trying to kill him. And Rome ends up arresting Paul, which really saves his life. As a small aside, Rome looks pretty good here through these surrounding chapters in Acts. For all of her flaws, Rome's strong sense of justice is used by God, captured by God to protect Paul and by association to protect Paul's mission to witness Jesus. More on that later. And so once Paul is in Roman custody, the Roman commander wants to find out exactly why that angry mob of Jews was so hot and bothered. 
And the commander has caught enough of the reason, it seems, to recognize, okay, it's got something to do with this God of the Jews. And so Lysias figures, hey, I know. I'll bring Paul before the leading council of Jews, the Sanhedrin, and see what they say, and then maybe I can figure out what to do with this guy, Paul. Well, let's let Luke, our author of Acts, shall we? Let's let Luke tell that story. I'll begin reading at Acts 22, verse 30. The next day, since the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews... He released him and ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Here's where we see the commander using the Sanhedrin as an advisory council of sorts. He wants to try and get at the bottom of all this fuss over Paul. 23 verse 1. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers... I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Paul is still calling his fellow Jewish brothers brothers. Man, the love that Paul has, the ache in his heart to reach the Jews with Jesus. This deep love of Jews just continues to pour out of the man. And Paul opens now in the Sanhedrin by stressing his obedience, both as a Jew and a Christian. He continues what he started in Acts 22, straining out of love to remind his fellow Jews that he is indeed a fellow Jew. So that the Jews might see that believing in Jesus as Messiah isn't anti-Jew at all. But to the contrary, believing in Jesus as Messiah is especially the Jewish thing to do. Oh, my brothers, Paul says repeatedly through this story. Verse 2, at this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. in the Bible. Do you feel Paul's indignance here? His outrage even? The law Paul is accusing the high priest of violating is probably Leviticus 19 verse 15 which says, do not pervert justice but judge your neighbor fairly. In effect, this Levitical law, very similar to our own legal system, which demands things like due process to anyone accused and which considers the accused innocent until proven guilty. Did you know those principles of fairness are biblically based? So the injustice of being struck before being found guilty gets to Paul, doesn't it? And he strikes back with words but pretty harsh words. He uses, in fact, a Jewish curse formula. A Jew doesn't use God's name lightly. We shouldn't either. Calling down God's striking of someone. And he calls, a, he calls the guy a whitewashed wall. Why that phrase? Well, it echoes Ezekiel 13, where the prophet speaks out against false prophets 
whose whitewashed appearance on the outside covers over their false message. And in short, he's calling the high priest a hypocrite. Someone who now is sitting in judgment, someone who talks obedience and is actually judging of someone else's obedience, but doesn't do it himself. Verse 4. Those who were standing near Paul said, You dare to insult God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize he was the high priest. For it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. That's Exodus 22, verse 28. Uh Uh-oh. Paul gets caught here while he's on trial for disobedience. He's just claimed he's obedient. And he gets caught with his next breath here disobeying God's law. That says, don't speak evil about the ruler of your people. That's the high priest. I mean, Paul calls down a curse on the guy. This is a big oops. Now, let me pause here for a minute to set up what happens next. It's my favorite part of, frankly, one of my favorite narratives, at least, in all the Bible. Let me start by asking you a question. How's it going so far for our friend Paul? I mean, the day before, a mob tries to kill him. He's arrested. He's almost flogged. He's dragged before the Sanhedrin. You know, the man stands up again, looks him right in the eye, figures he's going to give it his best shot again. Still out of love, I think, for his friends, his fellow Jews. So he figures, here's my opening. I'm going to start out by saying, you know, I have been faithful to God. And that gets him hit. Not a great start here before the Sanhedrin this day. Someone hits him simply for saying he's fulfilled his duty to God. And then he unknowingly curses out the high priest. How's it going so far for our friend Paul? Not so good. I think Paul's sitting there after verse 5 here thinking something like, well, that's just great. Can we agree his, his chances of being vindicated by his fellow Jews here, which, let's face it, weren't all too good to start with, can we agree at least that Paul's chances of a favorable outcome this day have diminished considerably? I think Paul's thinking, uh-oh. And then... What Paul does next is brilliant. In my opinion, one of the most brilliant moves Paul ever makes. Maybe one of the most brilliant moves anyone has ever made in the history of humanity. Okay, maybe that's a stretch. But at least Paul's move here is in that discussion. He does something that turns this whole thing around. He says one sentence And the whole thing turns on its head. It's brilliant. Let's read 23, verse 6. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. 
And Luke tells us parenthetically in verse 8 why. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection and there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Oh, Paul, this is brilliant. It's not going well. He identifies himself as a Pharisee. So he identifies himself as a Pharisee. And so immediately... The Pharisees in the room are taken aback a bit. Oh, he's one of us. And then Paul picks what he knows as a Pharisee is a hotbed theological issue that will rally the Pharisees to him. The resurrection of the dead. It's like throwing a big juicy steak in the middle of a pack of wolves so you can sneak away. And it just cracks me up. This is brilliant. And part of the brilliance is that technically, it's not why he's on trial. He's on trial for disobeying Torah. Read Acts 21 for specifically why Paul's on trial. You won't find even a whisper about the resurrection of the dead theological issue. (laughs) It's just brilliant. Now, to be sure... In general, it's why Paul is there, yes, because of Jesus' resurrection and Paul's resulting ministry. So Paul's not lying, but he's really clever here. Notice he doesn't mention Jesus' resurrection specifically in the Sanhedrin. Why not? That might risk, at this point at least, alienating even the Pharisees, who hadn't bought into that probably. And so he brilliantly pulls back from that specific truth that Jesus raised from the dead and just states in general, I'm here because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. It's brilliant. Just once, I'd like to say something in such a situation that was half as brilliant. And look what happens next. They all take the bait. Verse 9. There was a great uproar. And some of the teachers of the law, look what they do. Some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously, we find nothing wrong with this man, they said. (laughs) Suddenly they go from wanting to condemn him, and suddenly these Pharisees are thinking, hey, this guy pretty good. He's a resurrection of the dead guy. We find nothing wrong with this man. 23, verse 10. Oh, I'm not done with 9. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. (laughs) What if a spirit or angel has spoken to him? Now, if you're a Sadducee in that room, first Paul hits you with a belief in the resurrection of the dead, and the Pharisees starting to dispute breaks out. Yeah, what about that resurrection of the dead? And the Sadducee, oh, there you go again, you Pharisees, thinking about the resurrection of the dead. And the Pharisees, well, that's what it says. You know, people come back from the dead. And the Sadducee says, well, let's test your theory. Come here a minute. I'll kill you. See if you come back from the dead. Oh, yeah, well, it's fine for you. To, you know, and there's some fingers and some chests here. <laughs> and some Pharisee from the back corner of the room, right? He's like, yeah, a theological debate. And it's getting, so some Pharisee, he throws more gasoline on the fire. Hey, what if an angel told them that? Well, the Sadducees don't believe in angels. So now they're like doubly, triply men. Angel? There's no angels. What do you mean there aren't angels? What are all those people in the, in the, old, in the Hebrew Bible 
Old Testament, we say doing running around messengers of the Lord. Well, those aren't angels. Well, yeah, they, and they're just. And there sits Paul, right? I wonder what he's doing. We'll see in a minute, but maybe, you know, he's kind of rubbing his mouth where it's sore, and maybe for the first time in a while, there's a little grin on his face. We'll ask him someday. I want to hear him tell this story. At verse 10. The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him, Paul, away from them by force. I mean, you know, you got a group of Pharisees grabbing onto one of Paul's arms. He's with us. Leave him alone. You know, say, no, we're going to, you know. There sits Lysias. You know, no wonder Caesar is so fed up with these hot-blooded, rioting Jews all the time. He gives the order to his guys. The guys have to wade in, you know, Sadducees, Pharisees, yanking on each other's beards, wrestling with each other, you know, giving them a Dutch rub, sticking their finger in their face, and Paul's like, <laughs> So the Roman commander, <clears throat> and for a second time in as many days, Rome saves Paul's life. In they go, and they get him out of there by force. Get off of him. Oh, just let me handle him. Angels! No angel. Angel! You get the idea. Verse 10, the dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. That's that Antonio fortress that we looked at several weeks ago. The following night, the Lord, Jesus, stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. This is the very word of God. Amen? Amen. All right. Now, where to go with all that by way of application this morning? Beyond simply reveling a while, which I like to do, maybe you do too, revel a while in a riveting piece of inspired Scripture, how might all this help us in in our God-given task to reach the ends of the earth with the good news of Jesus Christ? A few observations. We find here, we can draw from this story, many characteristics of people of God intent on reaching the world for Christ. So what should we be like if we, like Paul, want to be successful in our mission? First, people of God don't strike back in kind. And related to that, people of God keep a close eye on their own righteous indignation. Here's what I mean. Please, please, be very, very Very careful when accusing people of disobedience or false teaching or hypocrisy or heresy. Now I know there are times where we need to take a stand and identify evil and sin for what it is. But even then, when that evil 
as it is very often, when that evil is wrapped into the choices or confusion of someone who is made in the image of God, and that's everyone, see Genesis 1 and 2. When evil involves someone cherished by God, that's everyone, see John 3, 16 and 17. Be very, very, very careful when you take your stand against it, because you're taking a stand against someone that God loves and has made in His image. Don't ever lose sight of Jesus' command to love your neighbor, even your enemies. And I understand and agree that there are times for so-called tough love. I get that. And I'm not trying to back away from that either. But be careful. We can so easily become so zealous in a cause against, we, against what we feel is evil that we fail to love the person or the people who God also loves. We fail to love those involved. Cut them off. And the whole thing so easily turns into this ugly, hateful, divisive self-righteousness. And before we know it, we become the very evil we're trying to defeat. We can so easily become the very thing we're trying to stop. Righteous indignation, righteous indignation is but a whisker, a whisker away from self-righteous outrage. And with the devil and his minions pushing us with all our might, all their might there, we can so easily fall over that line. Our story in Acts illustrates this vividly. Paul accuses the high priest of disobedience. And Paul's right. Is he being disobedient? Yeah. Shouldn't have hit him. Says so in Leviticus. Paul accuses the high priest of disobedience. And he's right. The high priest is disobedience here. But God's law, God's command, which Paul has just said he keeps in good conscience his whole life, no sooner is that out of his mouth, God's law also says don't speak evil about the high priest, let alone call God's wrath down on him. And in one hasty, outraged instant, his mouth still ringing from the blow, Paul blows it. He disobeys. Even though what he said is right. He just shouldn't have said it. Because God said not to. In Exodus. Now, let me say this to try and bring it a little closer to home. Think of someone you know who has made what you believe is a bad choice. Don't look at them. (laughs) Why is everyone looking at me? (laughs) Think of someone you know who has made a bad choice. A choice disobedient of God's Word. And for the sake of argument, let's just say, for the sake of argument, that beyond a shadow of any doubt, like Paul, You're right. The choice they've made is indeed a sinful one. We'll just presume that. 
And maybe this person is even someone very close to you. Someone you love. And you know, the closer they are to you, the more it may feel like you've been struck across the mouth by their choice. It hurts. And the reason it hurts is because they mean so much. Because you trusted them. And it feels like, though it really isn't, it feels like treachery against you or something. It hurts deeply, doesn't it? Deeply when someone close to you makes a wrong choice. And my question is, how do you respond? What do you do? Do you say, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall? I was just thinking of what would happen today if we really called someone a whitewashed wall. Huh? They wouldn't know to be upset or not. Well, white's kind of good. What are you saying? Well, let's put it more in our language. Do you say, may God curse you? Is that how we should respond? You know, it just dawned on... We're leaking into the realm here of judge not lest you be judged. In fact, that's exactly what we're talking about because that's exactly what happens to Paul, yes? Is that how we're to respond when someone we love or someone we're commanded to love? That's everyone. Is that how we're to respond when someone we love makes a choice we know is wrong? In my strong opinion, the resounding biblical answer to that question is no. If we respond that way, we make the same mistake Paul made, and the same thing happens to Paul that happens to Paul will happen to us. In effect, we judge ourselves by assuming the role that only God holds, the role of judge. We ourselves disobey God's command when we respond in judgment and condemnation. That's His job. Let Him do it. Instead, our response needs to be, keep on loving. In fact, love even more. They need our love all the more. And P.S., if we stand any hope, of helping them in love see the error of their choice. That path is love, not condemnation. How about the marriage relationship? That's where all these relationship things really get down deep, right, married people? Ever been in an argument with your spouse? Hey, if you haven't, <laughs> ever get in an argument where it gets real heated? Well, you, and you, and then you, and you start to feel it? Because you know their buttons. And then, you know, the absolutes come out. You always, here's some advice, marital counseling for free this morning. 
Avoid using absolutes like that because I'm going to use one right now. It's never true. <laughs> you can unpack that on your way home. I, but we go there, right? Because we're really going to sting him with that one. Well, you always. Nah, nah, nah. Now, it'll feel like you've been struck on the mouth. And you're going to want to, well, yeah, I got one for you. Here's my strong advice don't. Don't strike back in kind. Wait. Get out of the room. Don't swallow it. Oh, and it's hard to swallow because it's right there. And it, oh, I just nail him with that. Don't. Please. Learn from Paul's mistake. Be very, very careful when accusing people of disobedience. Don't forget the people part. Or you may, I'll even say you will, if we forget the people part when confronting evil, we will eventually at least find ourselves disobeying God's command. We will eventually, or even very quickly, like in Paul's case, become the very disobedience, because all sins are equal in God's eyes, will become very quickly, like Paul did, the disobedience we're against. People of God don't strike back in kind. And they keep a close eye on righteous indignation. That one, um, that one's for my dad. Uncle Chet, you... Um, You hit the nail on the head yesterday. Dad is indeed a peacemaker. And as peaceful as heaven was on August 27, before Dad got there, it became an even more profoundly peaceful place on August 28 when Dad joined his voice to the heavenly chorus. That's for you, Dad. Wow, I've got three more. <laughs> the Bible's so amazing, isn't it? I mean, you open it and you start digging and it's like this blast of light and love and God Himself just bursts from the pages. It's like standing in front of a fire, hydra fire hydrant. Right? And God wraps... All that revelation and love, he weaves it right into the nitty-gritty of real life, real circumstances, real people with real stories. Why does he do it? So we can better relate to what he's revealing about himself. And so we can better relate to him and to each other in love. But as, um, as Taylor Trek would say to me, Mr. Lanning, it's time to land the, pl land the plane. So I'll try to land the plane. Next. People of God repent when they realize they've been disobedient. People of God repent when they realize they've been disobedient. What's Paul's immediate response when confronted with his own sin of condemning the high priest? 
To paraphrase it, Paul's immediate response is to say and truly mean two of the more difficult words to say and truly mean in the English language. Paul says, I'm sorry. People of God repent when they realize they've been disobedient. Third, people of God think they're clever. They're shrewd, to quote someone named Jesus in a parable. They do wise things like divide and conquer. Did you notice that Paul used that strategy? He saw it be hopeless to reach that entire assembly as he sits there rubbing his mouth. And so he at least took the opportunity to go after those that, well, I got the best chance of convincing. He went for the Pharisees to support. He divided and he got their support. He conquered. We don't have time for a full illustration illustration for these last two. I'll leave that up to you. But I'll phrase it using one of today's common sayings. You can't please all of the people all of the time. And I'll add to that from our story this morning. And in those instances, try at least for some who God reveals to you, like Paul did. Last, people of God always Remember and acknowledge that God's in control and that God is with them and that God is working through them even when it seems like a big, fat mess. Step back a bit from what happened that day with Paul. At first glance, it might seem like a disaster. Nothing was gained. I don't think... Much could be farther from the truth. Consider this. Paul received that day a nod of approval from the Pharisees, Judaism's most respected teachers. And my friends, that was huge. Huge because the Jewish people respected first and foremost the opinions of its Torah teachers, its Bible teachers. Most Jews, the ones committed to God and obedience to God and His Word, didn't care much at all for the Sadducees. And boy, is that an understatement. Hated the Sadducees might not be too strong a word. Because Joe and Mary, godly Jew on the street, felt the Sadducees had sold out to Rome. And so the bulk of the people, at least, looked to the Pharisees for their leadership cues when it came to obeying God's Word. That was their life study. And look what happens in Acts 23. Don't miss it. Paul emerges from that Sanhedrin that day, I think maybe with some smile on his face, he got a ringing endorsement from the Pharisees of all people. Look at what they said. Look at what was heard when the story was told. The Pharisees said, we find nothing wrong with this man. Wow. Now that's an endorsement. What a statement. What a huge boost to the gospel reaching Jews who look to the Pharisees for direction. And what about a boost to the gospel reaching Gentiles? Well, speaking of Rome, Roman law protected from persecution the Jewish religion. And as long as Christianity was viewed as part of or rooted in or accepted by the Jewish religion... It received the same protection against persecution, the protection of Roman law of all things. And that protection, even indirectly an endorsement from Rome, that protection and endorsement in the years to follow in the early church 
What Paul helped gain here under Roman law, oh my word, what a boost to the gospel reaching the world. It's difficult to overstate what God in fact accomplished through the Paul in the mess of Acts 23. So it at first looked like what might seem like a big fat mess accomplishing nothing. God accomplished a lot that day through Paul, even through Paul's mistake, both through his mistake and his brilliance and everything in between. And oh, that encourages me. I got to tell you, my life's a mess sometimes. Is yours too? Sometimes what happened in that Sanhedrin council chamber here in Acts 23 looks like mere child's play to the mess that breaks out in my life and witness. How about you? And it's so easy to become discouraged when messes happen, isn't it? It's easy to lose sight of God who faithfully works for good even in the messes. So easy to feel like a failure. So easy to lose sight of God who's right there with us in the muck and mire. And even when, especially when we make mistakes. And oh, thank God, because I make mistakes all the time. Do you? Wow, do we serve an amazing God. Amen? And if you're ever discouraged because of a mess, or if you wonder, despite your best efforts, if you're really making any difference for God, please hear like Paul did the words of Jesus. Take courage. Keep testifying about me. I'm right here. I'm paying attention like you wouldn't even believe. Every hair on your head, remember, it's all good. Come, let's go. People of God don't strike back in kind. They repent when they realize that they've been disobedient. They think they're clever. They're shrewd. They do wise things like divide and conquer. And they remember that God is in control and with them there. Even when it's messy. And in those ways, too, we, like the Apostle Paul, can be used powerfully by God through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to reach the ends of our earth with the good news of Jesus Christ. So let it be written. So let it be done. Actually, it has been written. So let's do it. So help us, God. Amen? Um, I would invite you uh, to stand, please. As our prayer this morning, as our testimony, um, I've asked John and Micah if they would play one of Dad's favorite hymns as a closing prayer and testimony for who we are in Christ Jesus. It's a track of our own West Bowles Choir. I've been playing it repeatedly all week. I invite you to make it your testimony too. As we try and strive, so help us God, to reach the ends of the earth with the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen?